He connects this with ethics and with virtue, which is why I think he was being a bit rhetorical in the beginning by saying it wasn't virtue. And love. Love is the thing that ultimately gives us the clue to how he resolves it. What up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be jumping into an article by philosopher Frank Ruda on courage. And this is interesting because this is not a term or a concept that is addressed too much in the academic setting. And it might even be like a maligned concept, right? Like in a post-feminist world, don't you think, Troy? Yeah, for reasons that Ruta gets into, I think that's that's correct. Yeah, so that'll be really interesting. It's a really accessible article, I think, as well, especially if you've got like a little bit of a philosophy education. We're going to try to break it down and uh, obviously make it for people who aren't experts in philosophy as well. But you can find it uh, open access. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's just called Courage by Frank Ruda, R-U-D-A. So if you want to read it before we get into that, go check that shit out ahora, which means now for all of you gringos out there. <laughs> <laughs> we also want to mention if you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access to things like our monthly newsletter, which has extra shitty minutes and sticky leaves, as well as bonus episodes that we put out every once in a while and other goodies. So go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get access to those things. And we are going to have a bonus episode that is already live, hopefully by the time this episode is out. Um, and it's going to be us just kind of ranting about some of the shenanigans going on in the primary elections. You know, corruption, that kind of shit. So, Yeah, we decided not to do it on the main podcast because it might be a little time sensitive. That's a little peek into our... Uh, awful terrible thought life right now for you know the patrons only yeah i didn't sleep last night it's this is the day after the <laughs> iowa caucus so for people wondering i didn't sleep last night because i was just glued to the uh shit storm so you know if you want to hear us vent for our own well-being uh, definitely go check out the bonus episode and we also want to mention to the patrons out there that um the patreon sponsored poll uh has ended for this uh Monthish, So the politics of certainty versus the politics of uncertainty, which is uh, a set of concepts which we still have to determine what they even are, let alone how to address them <laughs> in a podcast, um, has won. And so we're going to brainstorm an idea to do that. And hopefully next week or at the worst case, the week after, we're going to do the patron sponsored episode on the politics of certainty and uncertainty. This is totally my fault because I did say that I want to write a book one day about this. So well, you better write it now, bitch. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's go ahead and get into the show. We're going to start things off the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It's the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that's chapping our hide. Other than the Bernie kerfuffle. Troy, what has got you down? So I think I've ranted before, or at least we have before, on true crime shows and the kind of new wave of them over the past, what, five, six years since basically Serial kind of yeah. took over and became Oh, you mean like podcasts or even like Netflix things too? All of them. Now Netflix is the new house of these things, right? I went from being podcast form basically to now Netflix just houses like every true crime documentary you can think of. Yeah. Um, and as silly and ridiculous as possible, the better, right? Yeah. 
So have you heard about this new uh, Netflix uh, true crime little documentary called Don't Fuck With Cats? <laughs> no. You haven't heard of this? No. Oh, so it was viral a few weeks ago, maybe longer than that. Maybe I got to it late, but um, it's called Don't Fuck With Cats. And mm. the basic idea, it's it, luckily, thankfully, it was only a few episodes. So it wasn't like a whole season or 10 hours or something like that. Um, is that there's just, uh, there was this guy who posted a video online of him killing kittens, basically. Oh. And uh, a Facebook group um, kind of popped up of people who are extremely online boomers, basically, who are extremely online and who want to kind of dedicate all their free time to investigating this video, the source of its origin of it, who it was as performing the dastardly deed and then finding him and delivering him to the cops. Right. Yeah. And so the, the first like episode plus kind of deals with just this outrage at this person killing cats and then how these people are like analyzing doorknobs and mm-hmm. vacuums and shit like that to try and find out where in the world this guy is. Right. And they're mm-hmm. actually doing a fairly impressive job of it relative mm-hmm. to, how these, you know, these groups usually act, which is to like blame the near, blame the nearest brown person they can find. Um, and so it was kind of interesting and like it's it's superficial and it's it's clearly has its tongue in its cheek. Like the the characters, these people in the Facebook group that they're interviewing for this documentary are kind of ridiculous in a fun way. Um, and their outrage is certainly you, you sympathize with because, oh, my God, this guy's like murdering cats for fun. Like, what the fuck? How could you be more angry than being angry at that? Yeah. And I don't want to talk more about how it kind of twisted and turned and it ends up this guy who was murdering cats actually ends up a serial killer or whatever. Um, if people want to watch it, they can watch it. I don't give a shit. But at the end, after the whole thing's kind of been wrapped up and you get the, you know, the Daniel Juan everything, there's concern trolling that happens. Um, as the Facebook group, the people in the group start to realize that this person was doing the cat killing basically to get attention and this group gave him that attention it turns out that the the guy who was doing it kind of knew about the facebook group and probably infiltrated it and um so all the attention and all the outrage was actually something that he was feeding off of and that's the reason why he was doing it in the first place right and so the they basically look at the camera at the end and they're like and you're watching this so aren't you contributing also to giving this person what they what they want right and it's, it's, it's this idea of the concern troll that just pissed me off. I literally just said, fuck you to the TV screen at the end of this documentary <laughs> <laughs> in a way that I don't talk back to the TV, but I feel like it was necessary to the big other to address the big other at this moment. Yeah, and tell yeah. um, the Fuck you. Um, it's an important issue <laughs> to talk about the fact that like the celebrity that evil can can garner is a problem. Yeah. And we should address it and we should think tactically and strategically about what the right thing, the responsible thing to do in addressing issues like this. But I can't imagine a more superficial and haphazard way to address an important issue than to make a documentary, which you're going to make money off of, and then titillate people, right? This isn't just like a straight documentary. It's meant to be funny and entertaining. It's clearly edited and cut to be that way. The characters in it are, are being funny on purpose, right? To titillate and to entertain and then to just stick your finger at the screen and basically say, fuck you for watching this. That's just like that. It was offensive. And I'm the like last person I would hope to say like that things offend me because of, you know, um, 
whatever, because I don't think that the person doing it was being responsible or whatever. But fuck, I, I, I literally just said fuck you because I was offended that they would do that. Mm. Um, if you want to address these issues about media and celebrity, please do. But my God, do not just point your finger at the screen and say fuck you for giving me money. Mm. If, if that's the way that these true crime documentaries are going to go down now, which is to basically just insult someone for watching them, for wanting to have like an hour a day where they don't have to think about their you know fucked up life or whatever. That just sucks, man. And you suck for making it, right? Mm. That's all I wanted to say. You know what it reminds me of? I, I Tell me if it – I'm trying to think of this like psychoanalytically. There's a cynicism here, isn't there? And mm-hmm. part of the cynicism is that they somehow view themselves as being the wise who have escaped the cave, Right. Like they're outside of it. They're the pure and they get it. But you are unabsolved. You are still guilty because you're the one that did it. But you're the one that is entrapped in the system that actually induced the desire for us to watch this in the first place. You manufactured our desire by making this. So you're contributing to the kind of consumptive habit that you then somehow stand back and be like, aha, but it's not us because we're above it. You know, fuck you. You know, we're, we're, we're cool. We're outside of you know, the symbolic order and we know better, but you guys don't because you're caught into it. But we have, we have gnosis. We have this knowledge of being outside of it. Yeah. The worst part about it is they feel this guilt, right? Because they worry that they contributed towards these terrible events happening. Right. And then they assuage the guilt by saying, but at least I recognize that I'm at fault partially. Right. Now, then they point at the viewer and say, do you recognize that you're also at fault? Basically saying, you should start feeling guilty now for watching this, but we're going to help you by giving you the pill to help you assuage the guilt, right? Which, of course, is the worst thing you can do because it doesn't address the issue at all. It's pure, just palate cleansing, right? Mm. And that's the worst thing you can do, actually. It's even worse than just not even mentioning it. Because at that point, you just give someone the easy way out without ever having to really address the issue, which is how should we treat the fact that um, people who do terrible, evil things often in public are many times driven by you know the fame and celebrity you can get from doing it? They're just going to completely eradicate any responsibility we have towards changing things around that issue by just giving us a pill to take and we're done. Yeah, it's like the the it's like a preacher. It's like a preacher trying to preach a sermon about hell, right? And like this is their sinners in the hang- hands of an angry God thing. And they want you to respond because they they had their moment when they had the hell scared out of them. And so you need to have the hell scared out of you. And they have viewed themselves as the deliverers of the message because they are the enlightened. Fuck you guys. Yeah, it's the altar call, right? They yeah. give you this long speech about how terrible hell's going to be. And they say, just come down here and do the altar call. And then when you're like, well, what do I do next? They just say, I don't know, leave. Yeah, it's fucking mental terrorism, bro. You just throw <laughs> a grenade at somebody like that. Fuck you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you want to make this documentary and then have a whole series explaining like what we can do and some studies on what actually is the case in terms of how people use celebrity and fame um, as motivations for doing heinous acts like this. then yeah, yeah maybe Don't be like, talk- aha, you're going to hell, which is the equivalent of what they've just done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about it. It basically is like straight up Jonathan Edwards style preaching, but in the form of a documentary. Yeah, like you're just a fucking spider dangling over web. God is holding you up. You're oh, or dangling from a web over a big fucking flame and you're going to burn. Good luck. Peace. Fuck you. That's so yeah. shitty, man. 
this is the actual kind of bad moralism that we talk about, right? I think it's sometimes yeah. we, I talk a lot about how the idea that people sometimes label anything that has to do with moral content as moralism, and that's just wrong. It's this is the this is the moralism. This is the bad kind, right? Because it's not actually getting towards the moral issues. It's purely about assuaging conscience, which isn't really about morality in the first place, right? It's just like basically self-help morality, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I like the analogy with with the you know um, fire and brimstone preaching. It basically works the same way. But don't you think that a lot of political activism nowadays is kind of just this weird fire and brimstone act, you know? Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Edwards was like the first great, uh, maybe not the first great, but uh, first great contemporary politician in a way. <laughs> the Great Awakening, baby. Yeah. Yep. Did you, this is totally unrelated, well, kind of unrelated, but you were talking about how people found him online and stuff like that by using like clever like analytical tools and like camera, like looking at where things were in the background of the camera. Did you ever see when, remember when Shia LaBeouf was doing his He Will Not Divide Us art project? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, vaguely. Do you remember when he had the flag that he hoisted that said He Will Not Divide Us? Do you remember this? Uh, I don't think I remember that, no. Okay, so at first he had like this camera that was on 24 hours a day or something like that where people could come and... I expressed themselves about how Trump was not going to divide us or whatever. I don't remember what it was. And then like a lot of the MAGA, a lot of the MAGA, uh, like online Kek, Kekistan types, they, they found the camera and they, they, I think they like fucked with the camera and vandalized it or they just like stood out there in front and started like you know, chanting like Trump for 24 hours a day or whatever. So he was like, fuck that. I'm going to change it. So he changed the project to this camera that was in a hidden location pointed upward in the sky at a flagpole and at the top of the flagpole was a flag that said he will not divide us and it was like there were no identity markers no geographical markers or anything like that but this is what the the, the fucking maga online like subredditors 4chaners who are so fucking industrious this is what they did they started monitoring flight patterns in the background based on planes oh, I do remember that were this, flying. Yeah. <laughs> And based on the time of day and the direction they were heading and where they were starting from, and they were able to triangulate clearly where this camera was based on its angle pointing up at them, and they found the flagpole, and then they put a MAGA hat or like a Kekistan hat or a, a Peppy the Frog hat or something like that, and they hoisted it at the top of the flagpole. <laughs> My God. Oh, God. Oh, I, just, I can't believe people sometimes. They're... It not that's just the amount of free time they have, but that's pretty clever, dude. <laughs> yeah, this people are clever, no doubt about it. <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah, I didn't know about the documentary though, so I haven't been watching any Netflix lately. It just hasn't been tickling my fancy, so I I've been kind of staying away. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely times where I'm taking a break from Netflix after that. I need a little palate cleanse myself in the non-moral yeah. dimension. Yeah, you got to protect your mental health, dude. And Netflix sometimes just is not. You can't conducive. protect your mental health in contemporary America, dude. Don't even try. <laughs> I mean, I live just abroad. Just fall down so... the shithole. Just relax and enjoy the abyss. <laughs> enjoy your symptom. <laughs> uh, I think we are going to have to make an enjoy your symptom owls at dawn shirt or mug or something. Oh, 100%, yeah. dude. We have to. All right. <laughs> Until we get sued by the Lacan uh, estate. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll give, you know, half the proceeds to uh, 
translations, new translations of Lacan's seminars. Yeah, he's, he published it in French. So we'll just say that we believe via Quine in the indeterminacy of translation. And so you can't copyright that shit. That's right. Different languages. Yeah, fuck off, man. All right, dude, you want to transition into the main segment here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. So as I said at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about Frank Ruda's essay on courage. It's just called Courage, not on courage, but it's about courage. And um, for those of you who don't know, Frank Ruda is a German philosopher who is now based in Scotland at my alma mater at the University of Dundee. Oh, did I know that? It's very new. It's very huh. new. Uh, he That's just cool. got there, yeah, um, recently, I think in the last year or two. And it's been great. He's injected life into the community in a lot of ways. After The community was, the department was decimated a few years back, and then it slowly has been building itself back up. Um, not decimated, but let's just say that it lost, it, it, it was really vibrant before, and then it lost a handful of people kind of seemingly quickly in succession, and then it kind of started building itself back up, and they must have gotten some funding or something like that because they've been hiring people bit by bit, and, um, and now Frank is there, and he's kind of like a young stud in the world of continental philosophy, so he's brought like Badiou who's doing a seminar there, um, I guess. I got a buddy who just told me, so you know, there's, there's, there's an electricity there, which is good. But so Frank is kind of like a young, hot... Um, philosopher at the moment who has written on fatalism, he's written on idealism, he's written on the French philosopher Alain Bedieu, and this little essay, it's only like 15 pages, and it's on courage, and the thing that I really like about it, and the reason that I actually recommended it to Troy, one, because I think it's an interesting topic, um, but two, maybe, maybe more than anything, is it's really, really accessible, isn't it? Yeah, I think for, especially for continental philosophy, it's super accessible. Yeah, that's that's what I mean more than anything is that it reads pretty straightforward. Like, yes, there are some conceptual vagaries that just kind of come from the jargon of continental philosophy. Um, but, you know, it has an accessibility and a style about it that is very clear. And so I thought that, you know, for Troy, who is going to the dark side bit by bit as time goes by to the analytic world, I figured this might be a good way for us to bridge that divide a little bit, just in terms of form if nothing else yeah no yeah this is the way that i i would hope that continental philosophy would, would start to go in terms of um style which also it isn't just form i think it affects the content as well but um it's clearly coming from the from the um side of you know formal style so yeah the more of this the better cool so do you want to just how do you want to tackle this do you want to well i guess what were your first impressions are you familiar with Ruder's work yeah, vaguely. Um, I can't remember. Maybe I've read an article or two before, but I know like I've read little bits of uh, Hegel's Rabble. And um, what was the more recent book he did? Was it on freedom? On, on fatalism? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I'd gotten into any of that, although it's on my list. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's done a couple podcast interviews. He did one with Brian Cook on, uh, it's called like philosophy will ruin your life or why philosophy will ruin your life or something like that. It's called like philosophy will ruin your life. It's really good. And he's talking with Brian Cook, who's an Australian philosopher, and they're talking about fatalism and stuff like that. So if people are interested, you can check, you can check that out. You know, um, it's good, good shit. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not like an expert on Ruta's project more generally, but I've heard him talk, um, 
in like a couple of podcasts and I've skimmed through his book on freedom uh, and fatalism and I've read about some of his other work on like idealism. So um, I'm coming at this as, you know, someone who's just kind of just starting to really familiarize myself more broadly with his project. But um, I was interested in this primarily because I think just the the topic of courage is something that is so, it's such a masculinized term that I was very curious to see how he was going to philosophically engage with this term that I think is oftentimes just maligned as being a kind of outdated, brute, bro-y, militaristic even term. And so that's why I kind of was drawn to this article in the first place and then why I thought it might be kind of fun for us to chat about. Yeah, I don't know if if there, if I can recall off the top of my head if there's been other recent um, sort of attempts to deal with the notion of courage in continental philosophy. If you can think of one, let me know. But I think Ruda kind of just lays out that idea of the problem with it or why it wouldn't be typically considered to be a fruitful notion. And he kind of likens it to, um, I like how the, the first section of the paper is called Contemporary Aristotelian Republicanism. I was thinking like, oh, so he's talking about like Republicanism in like the ancient Greek sense, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, he means like in the U.S. American You're Like John McCain. So yeah. <laughs> So yeah, Aristotle and John McCain, you never would have thought they'd be uh, conversational partners, but here they go. Um, and so he brings up a couple anecdotes from, from basically public statements that McCain and George Bush had made relating courage to the idea of like militaristic discipline and political courage to the idea of some vague notion of like standing up to uh, do what's right or follow your conscience or, you know, some bullshit that clearly is just pablum um, used by politicians to excuse the fact that. Um, they're not going like, to actually do the job of representation or whatever. Um, and, and, and again, likening this back to the idea of courage is either used in this sort of cynical way by politicians or even if it's you know in good faith, it's like displaying this notion of like militaristic heroism, which is oftentimes um, like a basically a cover for immorality, right? Mm. And this has been a long noticed notion, right? This isn't something that like in just in the 20th century by, you know, um, like close smoking leftists with berets have noticed that courage is like this, right? Kant himself even said that, um, the virtues are not necessarily, are conditional goods. Like they're, you can have the virtues and use them terribly, right? He made the famous, um, you know, phrase in the, or section of the groundwork where he talks about how the coolness of the uh, villain um, is kind of a virtue, right? It makes him really good at being a villain because he's so calm and collected and has his shit together. But that's, and that's a kind of a virtue, right? But then it's used for these, you know, horrible things. So um, virtues are not necessarily always good. And, you know, ever we've always I kind of thought that courage is one of those morally neutral virtues that the hero and the villain um, can have courage, right? He mm. uh, even mentions um, uh, Susan Sontag's quote about the 9-11 hijackers as having a a kind of courage. I think she puts it in the negative, like at the very least you can't call them cowards kind of a thing. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That is interesting. Right. And I guess this, there is a stickiness because the kind of Aristotelian calculus doesn't, I mean, it kind of can be used because it is the mean between two extremes. So for people listening, right, you have cowardice and then foolhardiness on the other side. And virtue is a type of rationally calculated action 
that splits between both foolhardiness, which is where it's just like the crazy dude running with the sword into battle, I guess would be like a one stereotype. And then cowardice is the person who just stays home and doesn't fight. But for Aristotle, a rational virtue, a virtuous act is, you know, like defending the city against invaders, you know, protecting your family, protecting your homeland, that kind of thing. And so then you choose to engage in the battle because you have this principle, this reasoned, rational uh, basis for engaging in the activity that you're engaging in. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I do, there, there is a way that you can justify that from within your framework, like whatever it is that is your kind of like epistemological starting point sets the parameters that determine what cowardice and foolhardiness are, and then therefore you can reason to a position, well, this would be the kind of rational, virtuous action based on, let's say, for lack of a better term, based on the kind of master signifier that conditions our imaginary community or whatever it is that we're defending. So there is a sense in which you can, that ideology um, shifts in its, like, center and so therefore truly trying to develop a type of universal virtue is very difficult. And so then this kind of reminds me of Prozorov and the idea of imperfect nihilism, where you have like the regional narrative that can be inflated to the status of the universal. So that's why you get like the Washington Consensus, which becomes like the universal that justifies all actions by which the virtuous act is determined. So then any action done under the conditions of that universal, that master signifier, can be deemed virtuous because it's in defense of, in rational support of, the defense of democracy, freedom, or whatever, right? Or the exporting of, of global capital, which raises people's well-being. Kind of reminds me even of this recent Trump defense that Alan Dershowitz gave, which is some bullshit like, because Trump thought that he was serving in the public interest, therefore what he did wasn't actually, even though he was trying to manipulate, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the Ukrainian... Uh, official, it doesn't really matter because it was in the, the interest of the public because it was for his re-election and he thought he was doing something beneficial for the public. So again, it's kind of like this, his presuppositions, the argument from Dershowitz, his presuppositions are determining the good already of the action and he's completely within the right. So it's a kind of like a good action. It wasn't a foolhardy action. It was actually a kind of virtuous courage to engage in this type of deal making because it kind of fits within this larger universal that is already deemed good as the I don't know, the kind of hermeneutic by which all things are measured. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's it's probably the case that Dershowitz is arguing in bad faith. Um, <laughs> you think? But, yeah, but uh, I think you could make the same argument about sort of centrist Democrats in good faith. To bring about the context again, mm. we're talking the day after the Iowa caucus or two days in America. Um, and – you know, I think a lot of times leftists tend to think that that some centrist libs are basically just craven, right? Like they just they're they're too afraid to follow their convictions, and so they go to this like centrist centrist liberalism and basically only ever argue in bad faith against leftists. I think that's false for the most part. Sometimes it happens. Sure, there are grifters out there that are arguing in bad faith the whole time, right? But the most part, I think that 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 centrists kind of have this idea that leftists can't win in America, that, that America is a center-right country and you'll just, you can never win as a leftist. And so in a sense, even if it goes to the point of sabotaging a leftist, which I'm not saying that they're doing, but even if it got to that point and anything short of that is almost a courageous act because you're trying to save the Democratic Party from being destroyed for, you know, probably 
um, a generation uh, if, if they were to elect a leftist. Um, and so they probably mm-hmm. view any sort of, you know, attack on, on Bernie as actually being kind of a courageous act meant to save the party and to hopefully beat Trump. Um, I think most centrists believe that. And I think they're wrong mm-hmm. about that, obviously, right? But, you know, again, you could you could couch um, courage in all these ways, right? And following from this, as you're saying, this master signifier, this universal sense, um, which is going to sort of situate um, where courage is going to lie, uh, probably everybody thinks of the whatever they're doing um, as being at least attempting towards a courageous act. Doesn't this kind of force a sense of duty too? It almost like you must be courageous because if you don't, you are a coward. And then you don't want to go too crazy. You don't want to be foolhardy and start like bombing leftists and you know, um, you know, like whatever would be in inappropriate amount of force to dismantle the uh, Sanders campaign, but using the tools of, you know, corporate mainstream media and um, whatever else you can do by stacking people on certain committees within the DNC or whatever, that those things are actually there. They're not crossing the line into the foolhardy. They're still kind of uh, within the, the, the mean between two extremes. So it's almost like they can almost even say that they're kind of following an ethical mandate. There's like a responsibility here. This is actually ethical to be courageous to preserve the hegemonic logic. Yeah, and you know, you know what's interesting? Um, foolhardiness doesn't seem like kind of the equal and opposite of cowardice. Like foolhardiness can't really follow from like a reflective understanding of what you're doing, right? Whereas cowardice like, fo- can. Yeah, exactly. Cowardice can yeah. follow from reflective understanding. You decide this isn't worth it. I'm not going to risk anything, right? So you, you've weighed the risks at that point. You have reflective understanding and you decide to be conservative and not risk anything. Um, but foolhardiness pretty much only follows from not engaging in reflective or not accomplishing reflective understanding, right? Um, just sort of having very little information and just jumping off the cuff, right? Impulse decision-making. So in a weird way, yeah, it's almost like you could describe an action from the outside as being foolhardy by sort of um, pointing out that someone uh, acted without information that they needed, right? Or are sort of responsible for gathering first before acting. But no one's going to think of their own action, at least, as being foolhardy if they have reflected on it, right? Maybe um, after the fact, they can reflect and, and decide that it was foolhardy. But in the moment, they're not going to think that. Yeah, if they've reflected on it, it almost indicates that it was at least a type of reasoned uh, at least approximation towards a virtuous decision right but then simultaneously then wouldn't we say then that maybe the act of quote-unquote cowardice it's from the position that's making the judgment on the coward but if it's a reasoned position where you decide no i'm not going to engage in that i'm going to stay home then doesn't that almost become an act of courage because you're saying like uh, like I'm not going to give in to the social pressures or the imperialist pressures or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, we there's a sense in which we kind of have to view our deliberate, intentional actions as good. Um, yeah, uh, sa- like save irrationality, right, or to save irrationality. <laughs> but um, I do think that we can, in the moment, acknowledge being a coward or like lacking a virtue or having a vice. Mm, yeah. You can not normally, right, and not characteristically. Um, but it's possible. I'm not sure if it's possible to, in the moment, know you're being foolhardy. Maybe, m- maybe you can, like in a really extreme moment, just be like, fuck it. I'm doing it. Um, 
but yeah, it, there's some sense in which that's almost like like characteristically irrational. And so how do you decide to be characteristically irrational, like to decide to be intentionally irrational? I'm not sure that that fits. It, it's in some way different than, um, you know, acknowledging like your own vice or whatever and still following through on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Like a, a weakness of will. You can acknowledge you're being a coward, right? Um, but I don't know that you can do that with foolhardiness because you seem to lack the understanding that your action is foolhardy in order as a constitutive part of doing it. Do you think that weakness of will and being aware of it, that it relates to some type of habitual pattern? Like the reason you're aware of it is because you're aware of your habit of simultaneously not intervening, for example, when you see an old woman getting mugged on the street and when you didn't save the kid with special needs that's getting picked on at school. By the way, that's a reference to Nietzsche and the Burbs. Um, go get that <laughs> book. Um, you know, or whatever it is, and you recognize that you didn't do that and that you have a pattern of like you don't like violence and you're afraid of, you know, exposing yourself and making yourself vulnerable. And so you're aware of that. Like then the, the foolhardy person that we're redeeming foolhardy would we not say that they have like a similar habit where they just think of themselves like, like I'm just a tough guy. Like I just always intervene. Like that's just what I do. So their impulsive action to just simply run into battle, like to run over and stomp on the mugger's face, not to deliberately look at the mugger who's attacking the homeless old woman or something like that and being like, whoa, somebody needs to intercede. I'm going to go and defend this human. But rather you just impulsively go because it's the habit because you, you just embody the orientation of tough guy as an example. So like Ted yeah, Nugent, yeah. Ted Nugent is like a fucking, he's, he's like his machine gun and his helicopter shooting pigs because he just embodies the foolhardy tough guy. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It does seem like in the moment, the foolhardy person has to think that they're being courageous, but it's possible for the cowardly person to acknowledge their cowardice in the moment. That's Although really interesting. it would be yeah. hard to do that as a sort of, um, normative function. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like that. All right, so what, what what next? How do you want to tackle the article moving on? Yeah, so I think we've talked about kind of the, the main problem that Ruta's bringing up, which is, again, to reiterate that the notion of courage has this issue where it's sort of morally neutral, right? Um, and that maybe in the context of like what he calls U.S. republicanism, which is not a term that I think we use usually, but maybe sort of like um, conservative militaristic. Neocons? Uh, yeah, like neoconservatism. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that courage is cast as like the, the main object of courage is like the, um, or the subject of courage is the military, mil military hero, right. Um, yeah. or politicians supporting military heroes. And, the uh, and that follows from sort of what, uh, Aristotle deemed the privileged object of courage. And that was death. And Aristotle thought that defending the city, um, the just city, especially, um, from, uh, death of yourself and of the city was the uh, like main um, display of courage. And the reason for this is because it's the, he thinks it's the most rational, appropriate kind of courage since it's fear of death for the right reasons, countered by confidence for the right reasons, right? Defending the just city, doing what's right. Mm. And so um, Aristotle deems that the privileged object or um, sort of uh, a display of courage. And so you can kind of see how that has a correlation with uh, like the neocon um, sense of courage, just defending the America city on a hill, right? America, benevolent empire, um, uh, America, you know, um, police of the world. And so 
that's the connection that Root is making between the Aristotelian notion of courage and the sort of neoconservative notion of courage. And of course, that means that um, that sort of just displays a problem we've been talking about, that, that courage follows this master signifier, which is um, not necessarily guaranteed to be um, something morally good or just. Um, Aristotle thought that was maybe a little bit more optimistic about that than, um, you know, the, uh, the skeptical 20th century would have been, right? Mm. But Ruda wants to try and see if we can save courage rather than just mm. like leave it in the dustbin and say, you know what, we can't do these. We can talk about virtues like morally neutral virtues like courage, right? Yeah. And I like it. At the outset, he says it. And then at the end, he brings it back. And he kind of says, is there even the possibility of a feminine courage? Which, so I'm thinking, like you were talking right there, and we're thinking about maybe even the large-scale, global, military, imperialist notion of courage. And I just watched the new trailer for Top Gun, right? So I'm thinking like, yeah, of course. But I'm thinking even that is like a film that is supposed to incite the passions. But why? It's because these guys are badass, because they're heroes. They're, they excel. But isn't it not also that there's a sense in which that they're courageous? And then I'm thinking about, like, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl, but there were a lot of commercials or at least a couple commercials that were very much about, like, because, you know, the police had, I'm sorry, the NFL has had their protests um, spurred on by Kaepernick and others. Um, and then that's kind of dwindled. But now the NFL is trying to, like, uh, create types of um, alliances with players and where it's like a meeting of blue and player, like blue being the the police. Right. But like, don't we think automatic? And I was thinking about a lot of the commercials as I was watching them during the Super Bowl that like the police and the people who serve and who wear the uniform are kind of just de facto viewed as courageous. Right. Like you wear the uniform and wearing the uniform is an act of courage. And we don't need to get into whether or not that's true or not. Um, you know, full disclosure, I dated a cop for a little bit at one point. Um, <laughs> so um, we could we could talk about that at another point in the future, too. But so like. You know, is it courageous to wear the uniform and to engage, um, to wear the badge, to be a community policer, that kind of thing? Or are you enacting this sort of like distorted virtues of a hegemon that is essentially policing bodies and that is um, asymmetrically distorted in its oppression towards people of color and communities of minority communities, things like that. So it just seems almost like assumed that we understand what courage is and that we already have like pre-carved out roles for people in our society a lot of times who are the courageous, right? Like the police are courageous, the military are courageous. Um, you know, we have all these stories about like the courageous person who like the the girl who she surfs and she gets her arm bit off by a shark. And we tell the story about how she climbs back from the gutter to go back and be a professional surfer again. She's courageous. You know, there's this new fucking Ben Affleck film where he's a basketball coach who like hasn't played basketball in years. And then he gets hired as the coach <laughs> at like a Catholic school to inspire the kids. And it's called like finding your way back or some shit like that. It's all about the redemptive story because he's courageous because he's overcoming the limits. Right. We Dude, love Ben Affleck cannot play basketball. Like look at his body. I, you know, shape. it's funny. I was paying very <laughs> close attention to the trailers to see if they actually showed him shooting the ball, but they actually say this very well. He hasn't played since. So the implication is he hasn't played in like 20 or 30 years. So they have this one bit where he's on the court and it looks like he's about to shoot. And then they cut to a really wide shot and there's some dude down there <laughs> shooting. And I'm like, that's a body double. 
Yeah, dude. His body is not shaped like a basketball player. He's <laughs> <laughs> too bulky. He, yeah. he looks like a Mar- Marvel hero, right? Those He's bat players. flick, man. Yeah, dude. He can't yeah. play basketball. <laughs> you got to be lean. You can't have big bulky shoulders. Remember, have you seen Dwight Howard try to shoot free throws and three pointers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dwight Come Howard on, didn't man. coach anybody. Come on, dude. But yeah, you know what I mean? There's like this, this almost presumption of courage. And then there's this crazy fascination that we have with like the courageous person, which I think is really important to understand too, because I think what Ruta ultimately ends up doing is he's problematizing the individual liberal virtue of courage that I think is so characteristic of a kind of hegemonic American understanding of courage. That is the individual person is courageous insofar as they overcome you know, the the kind of like difficult situation through their reasoned calculation in line with the universal logic of the master signifier. Like that's Republican courage, American courage. Yeah, you know, I think my favorite example of this idea you're talking about is, you know, when, um, well, first of all, it's, it's like segue into it this way. Um, you know how beer commercials can't show someone drinking beer? I did not know this. That they can only show them holding beers. Yeah, so if you watch any beer commercial, it's just people holding beers, which is why Crazy. they have to be at like parties and stuff, right? To make you like not notice the fact that no one's actually drinking a beer. I have never it's very, noticed It's this. very weird. It's such American, like a legacy of American Puritanism that you can't well, show someone drinking a goddamn beer. Um, but like that in that way or like uh, correlated with that is you ever notice when you watch commercials of like the army and the navy and stuff, they're always of people like working on a project or running somewhere. Mm. But you, I always wonder, like, where are they running to? Because it's mm-hmm. always just a bunch of dudes in like all their all their military gear running somewhere, or like standing over something, and it's always just something kind of like blank and desolate. And there's never an enemy, right? They're just sort of they have a goal, is the idea, right? What's the content of the goal? Doesn't matter. It's the form of having a goal that matters, that's right? It. That makes you courageous, and that's a, that's an example of the fact that we have these pre. Um, you know, set up roles for people to engage in courageous actions with no actual content as to what makes something courageous, right? Because mm. uh, that, that gets to problematic. And too many people disagree about that. But we can all agree that the form of courage is running yeah. somewhere in camo. You know, it's so interesting, though. I, a lot of people who have served in the military, the ones even who haven't seen combat, they come back to civilian life. And that's one of the things they complain about is that it's so boring. They don't have a purpose because they don't have that form in which they can in libidinally invest that induces their desire based on that master signifier that they can throw themselves like fully into, you know? And so they come back into the corporate world and they're like, really? I'm supposed to just fucking crunch numbers and shit like that? For what? For what? Whereas the military is so good at creating that like frenetic, frantic, repetitive reproduction of the form of, in this instance, like a courageous type of virtue that you're always chasing after, that you're always... Um, you're always enacting. Yeah, which I don't think we should shit on. Um, we should shit on the obviously as a formal principle. Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah, but the fact that people are intrigued by the idea of I want to have a purpose, I want to do good in the world, I want to help people. Um, that's really good. That just shows that it's innate in human beings to want to have these things and to be connected with others and help people and do good and have a purpose greater than themselves. Like that's all good stuff, right? Uh, of course, it's you know, used and manipulated for the purposes that are against all those things. But we shouldn't shit on the fact that people want those things. That's good. Like you wouldn't be human if you didn't want to have those things, um, or at least you know some subset of those things. So, yeah. Um, yeah but it, it's of course the the idea here that um, courage is being 
sort of emptied of content um, that it can be used in nefarious ways. Mm. But interestingly, Ruda doesn't want to do the skeptics, you know, game and be like, we shouldn't consider anything as being virtuous or we should just get rid of the very idea of the virtues. Although he does want to say courage isn't a virtue. Um, although I think he's being a little bit more rhetorical than anything there. Mm. Um, let's talk about that. So he's got this idea of courage um, to truth, which is a idea from Foucault, right? Um, I haven't read that that work. Have you? Will to truth? Familiar with it at all? Courage to truth? No, no. Uh, isn't it an in, in inverse of the the claim of will to truth? Isn't that what he says? It's like a kind of like inversion of the Foucauldian idea, or is the actual book or the work courage to truth? Oh, the it is courage work, to I truth. Courage yeah, to no, truth. I've not read it. I've not read it. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I think I'd heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it at all. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it at all either. So Ruda's notion is he wants to sort of um, disconnect the idea of courage being connected with objective knowledge, which is the notion of the, the Aristotelian notion, right? That you know um, the proper object uh, of courage, right? Death, you have the proper confidence, right? Which is a kind of, you know, knowledge, understanding your capacities and things like that. He wants to sort of disconnect courage as a virtue from that kind of thing and connect it to truth. And of course, whenever you say truth in philosophy, you're going to have to go under 15 different, mm -hmm. um, like, intentional uh pathways to figure out what you're talking about but he brings up this notion um both from Foucault and he mentions Badiou as well and talks about the operational or operant notion of truth um mm. and he goes on like a bunch of different asides here and I got a little lost at certain points trying yep. to connect where the argument was going it was snaking a little bit around mm. um goes to what talks about Heidegger's concept of anxiety, angst, and then Lacan's kind of reformulation of it, and Bajou with truth, and Foucault with courage to truth, and all these things. Um, do you have a sense of where this argument was going? I mean, I so I think that ultimately it is about, uh, I think you have to go to page, so on my thing here, it's like the third to last page, like second to last and third to last pages is where it kind of gets into it, right? And so yeah. he says, like, why should courage consist in assuming and possibly saying the worst and that only under this condition, and this condition is that of something like an absolute indifferentiation, is one actually able to say the truth and thus do philosophy? Does this turn courage into another kind of virtue? And then he says, here at the end, Hegel can help. Because he speaks of a courage that is constitutive not only of philosophy, but of any kind of thinking. And so thought needs what he calls the will and courage for the truth. And then he goes and he talks about Kant as Kant being the kind of first anxious philosopher. And what he means is, is that the object of courage itself needs to be faced as like this process of indifferentiation that induces a type of anxiety. So for Kant, his retreat into his subjectivism is precisely his way of mitigating the ontological uncertainty that exists um, rather than it just being a purely subjective act. So this is a kind of like Hegelian ontologization of um, indifferentiation that induces anxiety that throws us in, into an impossible situation and that that is from which the situation from which we act that determines kind of the courageous action the response to that the Kantian action is kind of the conservative retreat into subjectivity to mitigate the consequences that come from anxiously facing the uh, kind of radical field of like difference or indifferentiation let's say 
And I think that's kind of the idea of, of appealing to the Foucault, Heidegger, Kant thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the anxiety part is being sort of, um, he's, you know, celebrating that Kant was the first one to actually sort of think thought, right? But then yeah. retreat into anxiety um, or retreat into subjectivity, which results in anxiety rather than um, actually f- like fully following through on thinking thought. And he thinks Hegel succeeds at this by, I, I believe the phrase is something like thinking thought without the world, which I take to mean this process of indifferentiation, right? Which he says is, has happens in like four modes, right? Uh, you in, indifferentiate context, you indifferentiate um, the addressee, um, you indifferentiate the consequences and something else that I forget. But uh, I guess the idea there being, as I took it, something like um, thinking the conditions and the nature of thoughts without having to think about there being anything else in the world. About there well, being isn't it also without having the world as a fixed foundation from which thought thinks? Yes. So, so the Aristotelian without idea... The world which would include that, Yes, right? without... Right, because the Aristotelian idea requires a pre-existent identity of the world from which the virtuous, courageous act can be reasoned. Whereas the idea of using Foucault, Hegel, Kant is that you ontologize... Um, anxiety in the object so that the object itself is an anxious object. It is anxiety maybe per se, which then redoubles onto the constitution of the subject. And so then you get a different type of subject. You don't get a rational animal like you do in Aristotle. What you get is either the Kantian subject, which is the type of retreating from the anxiety of the ontology of the lack of the world, or you get Ruda's solution, which is the more Lacanian, Hegelian Badewian working within the impossible, attesting to the impossible, that is the feminine courage that he articulates. Does that make sense? So the, the first part makes sense to me. The idea that um, the Kantian transcendental subject and the fact that, you know, the idea of how do you how do you connect the transcendental subject with the empirical subject is just kind of a, you know, like shoulder shrug <laughs> for yeah. the Kantian, right? And there's ways of, of tackling it, right? But it's it's obviously a huge antinomy there. Um, and that Hegel wants to actually resolve that. That's like one of the principal ways in which Hegel tries to supersede Kant, right? Um, I'm not sure I get the connection from that. And I think I get the idea of, you know, Hegel is trying to think, you know, absolute or figure, you know, contemplate absolute knowing, right? Um, thinking thought and the conditions of thought of itself. Um, how does that connect this idea of like, is, is, is the notion that, that's philosophical courage is trying to think the conditions of thought, you know, of itself. Um, or, or I'm not sure how that's, how we're getting from that to this idea of feminine courage, which he just kind of ends the essay mentioning. And I felt yeah. a little bit like I like a little bit more of an aside on that. I think he's kind of alluding to a type of like Lacanian female sexuation, like the primordial uncastrated non all kind of thing. Right. Because he talks about, he says this, he says, courage might need to be courage in the face of impossible choices. And what are these impossible choices? It's this primordial choice, right? This like pre-subjective, pre-objective, like thrown into angst, thrown into anxiety, um, not trying to cover anxiety, not trying to manage the anxiety, but attesting to 
anxiety as the ontological condition. Yeah, and he does sort of, and this is, I think, my favorite part of the essay and that I wanted to explore was he connects this with with ethics and with virtue, which is why I think he was being a bit rhetorical in the beginning. By and love. Virtue. Love is the thing that I think ultimately gives us the clue to how he resolves it. No? Well, I thought love was more of an analogy he was making um, with the idea that you can't choose to be in love. It's uh, something that's it's like a primordial choice that happens to you, and then you have to either like accept it or reject it, right? Um, and that's the primordial choice thrown into the impossible, situation, impossible situation of ontological anxiety. Exactly. But I think love is just like a like a an instance of that, right? Okay, um, yeah. I think he mentions that he says courage is the something like the acceptance of exploring the consequences of a decision that you did not make for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is brilliant. I love that. Yeah, that's um, great, isn't it? Yeah. And, and he mentions Kant's notion of the primordial choice of character, which is, of course, a huge issue, right, in ethics, which is how, like, how do you begin becoming a good person? Don't you already have to be a good person, want to be a good person, which means you are a good person in the first place, okay. right? Okay, this is, this is important. You know why I think I get this a little bit more and it's making a little more sense? Because I've listened to him talk about his book on fatalism because he doesn't believe in freedom. He believes that fatalism is the true freedom. So there's a fatalism here that I think he's trying to get out of this idea that that like courage can be attached to this idea of like a libertarian assumption of the individual freedom, but rather it's a kind of ontological condition. But and then he's a Galian, so I'm yeah. not sure I believe anything that you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like, yeah, freedom, fatalism, and then there's, there's an, an antithetical relationship there. So what's the, what's the Afebang doing? Um, mm. So can, can you say a little more? Well, about- because that's why he says at the end, look at this, he says, this is this is this is just totally rhetorical. I love it. It doesn't mean anything, but I love it. Um, he says, <laughs> he says, even though their appearances cannot but produce anxiety. Oh, here, let me go back. So courage might need to be courage in the face of such impossible choices of operations that entail in a condensed manner and that condense the kernel of subjectivity. So that's interesting. Condensation, subjectivity. But okay, so even though their appearance cannot but produce anxiety. They are nonetheless constitutive of the subject in the world. So the subject in the world are constituted through the prior conditions of ontological anxiety, right? And so then he says this, and courage may be needed to think them. So courage is the philosophical act. It is the philosophical act of attesting to that ontological condition. And then he says, a courage of the hopeless, a courage of fatalists, of feminine courage or feminine courage, which doesn't mean anything. Like the last three clauses, a courage of the <laughs> hopeless because they don't have hope, because they don't have like a pre-constituted idea maybe. So that's why it's hopeless. There's no telos. And then a courage of fatalists, that's because they're kind of already subject to the ontological um, determinism into which they're thrown. And then it's, or feminine courage. That's my thing. I don't understand why it's feminine. And I think it's because he's using the, like, the logic of the non-all in the Lacanian sense. That it isn't the courage of the masculine that has the pre-constituted idea that is defended through rationality and through, let's say, the male sexuation, the kind of logic of, the logic of castration that covers over anxiety, that covers over and mitigates uncertainty through the imposition of certainty on top of it. And that's why it's a feminine courage. Does he have that much of a Lac- uh, Lacanian influence? You think? I know he mentions him here. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know how deep it runs. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I, I kind of always thought of him as like a Bedou Hegel guy. Yeah. 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 And Badiou yeah, so, is critical of Lacan, but comes out of because obviously he was a student of Althusser, so he kind of uses like structuralism, but he's ultimately critical of like structuralism and therefore structural psychoanalysis. And then Badiou is critical of Lacan, but still obviously engages with Lacan a lot. Yeah. So I also was pretty perplexed by the way this ended, um, <laughs> but I, I do I do really like this notion. I was thinking a lot about it yesterday as after I was reading after I read the essay that. There is this, you know, great antinomy in, um, in sort of ethical and consideration and in the idea of virtue, that you have to begin to want to be virtuous to become virtuous, but then that would already mean you're at least somewhat virtuous. So it's like mm. a classic, um, like <laughs> how do you like yeah. Platonic, you know, from the like you know, how like do you, a how do you paradox? Gain, <laughs> yeah, how do you gain not? How do you gain knowledge? You have to already have it to gain it, right? You can't just <laughs> right. start. Um, so you can't just start being virtuous. You have to already have it to want to be virtuous in the first place to begin. So yeah. there's that there, and that's really interesting, I think. And, and there is a sense in which, obviously, that means that we are already virtuous in some way, right? Um, mm. We are already like concerned with with the good, but then that means it's not really a choice. So you don't deserve responsibility and credit for it, right? You don't deserve praise for it because it was if it was already there. Um, so it's sort of alighting this notion that we have this like moment in our lives where we just sit there and we're we're like the, the the judge or the mediator right and we're deciding between being good or being evil and then mm. we decide on the good and that that leads our life towards the life of courage right and that's the exact kind of thing that like we're talking about with the the rhetoric that like the military plays on right it's, like, you're a high school senior now is your time to decide are you going to be a courageous person or are you going to go work in an office or whatever right and it's like yeah i'm going to be courageous and so you decide and you become virtuous or whatever right um, and that, that's like the, the masculinist notion and that probably maps onto the Lacanian male situation as well. I would think in some way, um, that you have this libertarian freedom and then you decide and that sort of, you get credit for that and you feel good about it and you deserve to be praised and the country should, you know, kneel or not kneel before you, but, you know, uh, salute before you or whatever. Right. Mm. Weird how kneeling became a sign of disrespect all of a sudden. That's very strange. Mm. Um, and so we're kind of countering that here. Root is countering that by saying that we can think of a different um, kind of courage that it accepts the sort of non-all, right? It accepts the fact that we're thrown. And the Heideggerian idea of, being, of thrownness is clearly here, right? Even though I don't like Heidegger, I got to admit that's a good concept. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're thrown into this and so we have to take responsibility in order to actually act. We have to take See, responsibility yeah. for a situation that – Including our own. It isn't, character, it isn't our, our self, situation. Isn't yeah. our situation. Yeah. We yeah. have to accept responsibility for things we, that we're not responsible for um, in the libertarian sense. And so that's a that's kind of paradoxical, right? But you have to do it to act. But isn't this the very sort of like existential Sartrean Kantianism that people kind of level against uh, Sartre from existentialism as a humanism, right? Where he talks about like making that decision and then um, having that kind of be the the universal maxim. Like it's his almost categorical imperative. It's this idea that uh, existence precedes essence and then you take responsibility for the decisions that you make in situations into which you're thrown that aren't of your own choosing. 
right? Now, he doesn't focus so much on that latter clause, the into which that are not of your own choosing until a little bit later, but that is implied, and he does talk about that in existentialism, is a humanism, and that that's what radical freedom is for Sartre. That's what, that's what ethics is, even though he never finishes his work on ethics. And I think that there's this real sort of existentialist kind of notion here in, in Ruda's redefinition of courage. Yeah, I would think that um, you know the vulgar notion of the sort of existentialist subjectivity which may or not may, may or may not be what Sartre was actually doing in existentialism as a humanism, right? But is still a libertarian notion, right? Which is no matter um, what the coordinates of your uh, activity and thought are, the initial coordinates, you can still choose, right? This is, I think Rude's actually saying, no, you can't. No, you no. Accept the fact that you can't choose. See, an existentialism is a, in a human is a humanism. It's you are always choosing. You must choose because consciousness is always transcending the context, so your project is always transcending the material conditions into which you're thrown. You yeah, are is always transcending. Isn't Ruta saying that it's not? <laughs> you're not able to like escape the initial coordinates of your decision making. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that's is true. Yeah, yeah, that's where he. But that's where Ruta's less. Yeah. yeah, that's where Ruta's less Kantian than Sartre, the earlier Sartre. Yeah, exactly. And so he's saying Definitely. you actually do have to accept the fact that you can't exceed the material conditions in which you find yourself. But then accept responsibility for that. Mm. Yeah, that's why it's a fatalism. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's a fatalism that doesn't follow through on the sort of actional consequences of fatalism, which because is usually it doesn't, like give yeah. up. Yeah. It doesn't, and it seems uncomfortable because it doesn't equip subjects to act in the same way that we're accustomed to thinking about it as liberal subjects who are trying to, like, in the Sartrean sense, overcome the material constraints in like maximizing our radical freedom or whatever, or maximizing the enactment of our project. Yeah, exactly. Which makes me think, does this, does this go down like the Camus, um, mm. like pathway where it's just like, that means we act out of spite <laughs> towards uh, fatalism, right? Like we're just, um, the only equipment we have, the only reason we have now to act is out of spite which I think is very bad. Um, and I don't think that's the case because he talks about this feminine idea of courage and that doesn't seem like the spitefulness, right? Um, mm. So yeah, that's why I, I kind of want to know, like if we're not going down the vulgar existentialist lane and we're obviously not going down the Kantian subjectivity lane and the like Camus lane isn't available here because that's not the feminine courage, then what is it? I guess we got to read the the fatalism book to talk about it. Yeah. Well, do, do you think the hint is right here? Do you think there's like an enjoy your symptom thing? It's this bit where he talks about just a couple sentences very before the end that we've, that we've already highlighted. He says, this also points to a possible redefinition of courage. It means to explore the consequences of, and that is to be responsible for what one has never consciously decided, but which is nonetheless a decision that has been taken a choice of neurosis in Freud, he says, like a neurosenval, neur neurosenval, um, which is a Freudian term that I'm not familiar with. But he says it's like a neurosenval, which is a choice of neurosis in Freud, and in this case, even contra Hegel, also like what Kant calls the primordial choice of character. So courage, courage might need to be courage in the face of such impossible choices. So the choices are the choice of your neurosis. Is this not like enjoy your symptom? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has a similar cadence to it, right? Um, yeah. But I think it isn't the enjoy your symptom thing a little bit more like 
uh, masturbate in public because fuck it. <laughs> I mean, um, so what would it mean to 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 like commit yourself to this decision that you haven't made that has been taken? That is a choice of neurosis. It's like an yeah, acceptance I mean, acceptance of your neurosis, right? Yeah. The more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm thinking that you're I was wrong and that you're a claim that the that the um, the section he he talked about love actually is kind of the key, right? Because that's that's the picture of it is you find yourself in love, you don't choose it, right? Yeah. And it's this clearly incredibly important decision that happens, but it's not a decision you make. You find yourself in it, and then you have to react. You have to either explore the consequences of it and you know engage in something very risky, um, or not, right? And so it is kind of that like maybe a little bit of William James style um, courage of the will to believe, mm. which is to to take the risk of exploring the consequences of decision you did not make for yourself, but which nevertheless is made. And that is um, his redefinition of courage, which then is interesting, which means that if you don't do that, then you are not acting courageously. So it's actually almost like then the kind of will to power kind of republicanist model that we were talking about is actually not courageous. Because it's precisely engaged in a different type of nefarious, not not nefarious, a type of um, oh, like forceful, powerful uh, thinking and acting in the world. But it's not courage. Courage is precisely like taking your irrational, maybe taking your irrational and neurotic condition and working within that. Which is very different because you how the how the fuck could you build a politics on that? I think is the interesting thing, right? Like Yeah, like, yeah. He's trying he's trying to navigate between like the classic Aristotelian notion, the Kantian notion, this kind of Camus lane of like spitefulness, the existentialist notion. Like he's trying to navigate between all these things and avoid the pitfalls of each of them. Mm. Which is really interesting. Cause yeah, it ends up being not super contentful. It's not obviously, but like that is like that thing seems like a the lane to go down. Um, mm. Yeah, I just yeah. don't know where you where you go from there. Well, I mean, I think practically speaking, it's very difficult because Aristotle's notion of courage, courage as virtue, is very commonsensical and also has an explicit political project. And I don't just mean political in the sense of like voting for candidates, right? Obviously, it just, it has a concern for the city, the establishment of building the virtuous community or for Hegelian terms, like the sick, the, the sick, sick, height, right? Uh, the sitlik height, mm-hmm. the kind of ethical community, like it's eminently concerned with that. Whereas his project, Ruta's project, does not seem to be concerned with the ethical community per se, precisely because it's like pre- pre-associate uh, it's pre-social it's pre-subjective it's pre-world pre-worldly you know what's interesting ooh, ooh, ooh. i told you about daniel tut's lecture on like karatani right yeah okay for people listening daniel tut i don't know if daniel listens to this podcast daniel what up dude um but he has this great lecture on uh karatani and um he calls Kar- karatani is a, a japanese philosopher who basically argues that kant is a proto-marxist and um and one of the things that karatani Correct. Yeah, one of, the things, one of the things that Tut uh, talks about is how the reason is because for Kant, um, what you have is uh, – in, in Karatani and I, 
I think Tut are arguing against like the Rawlsian distributive reading of uh, liberalism and, and, and Kantianism. But the idea um, that you get in Kant is a type of um, unsocialized socialization. And what you have then is this like community that is in uh, a community of association that is like pre-socialized, right? And that's what the categorical imperative provides is that sort of like precondition, right? And that's – there's like a mutuality that exists as let's say the um, the primary condition. This is very like – this is why it's actually – I don't know if it's Marxian so much as it, is, as it is like Kropotkin or something like that. It's very much more like anarcho-communist, like almost uh, um, like Tolstoy kind of communitarian thinking. But there's this like pre-existent – um, associationism that is the idea of stripping yourself let's say from the transcendental coordinates to reveal that um that associationism rather than like the Rawlsian idea which is more about like building up a distributive system from atomized subjects to kind of create an ethical system of exchange or circulation or whatever right and i think that that might kind of get us to this like maybe ruta is trying to kind of get us to a similar type of like unsocialized socialization um i don't know if that would be a political project that would that would be commensurate with this this redefinition of courage, but it seems maybe. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so. At the very least, it's it's clearly not apolitical in the way that, like, I think Camus probably is, right? And that the existentialist notion could be in certain guises, like the vulgar kind, at least. Um, yeah. It doesn't atomize in the same way, uh, which yeah. is important. Yeah, because it's appealing to, like, a primordial universality. Yeah. No? Yeah. Yeah. Avoid universalism, we might say. <laughs> it, it all goes back to Prozorov, man. It does, dude. He was tapping right. into something good there. I know. Okay. Well, cool. Well, let's well, – final thoughts on this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean I think that that we've kind of said that all that we can say at least right now. Um, I'm really intrigued by the idea. I love the fact that you know, continental philosophers and, and, and Ruda and there's, there's many others like him I think in the 21st century – um, that are trying to revive some kind of traditional and classical notions in philosophy, but then reconce- like reconceptualize them, right? Reformulate them. Um, mm. That has been absent from continental philosophy and you know other forms of philosophy as well. And so I, I really enjoy that, and that just that kind of brings back like why you love philosophy in the first place, right? Because it brings mm. these notions that are important to you and that you value, and then just fucks with them in ways that blow your mind a little bit. And um, I think doing that with courage here is is great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, I had a friend recently ask me if I knew of any good continental resources on the topic of loneliness. And it made me think that it'd be really lovely to have something like, you know, like phenomenologists do this. Like you get people that are doing like a phenomenology of love, a phenomenology of fear, a phenomenology of pain, a phenomenology of anxiety, loneliness, etc. But, um, you know, like something that's post-phenomenological. It'd be really lovely to have people that are doing more of these like topical studies, like rather than just like this philosopher addresses loneliness in this larger conceptual apparatus where they're talking about being or something, which is great too. I don't mind that. But Or like the analytic just, philosophy notion, which is just, you know, let's do some like uh, conceptual analysis of loneliness. <laughs> what are the necessary and sufficient conditions of being lonely? Right, right. Yeah. No, it's really nice. So... Well, cool. Well, maybe we will uh, tackle Ruta at a later at a later date, where we can like delve delve into his book or or something like that. Maybe we'll get him on the podcast at some point. So yeah, I would I would love to have his book um, be on the uh, 
the book club list at some point in the future. That'd be great. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Well, let's wrap this up and get into the final segment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know what we got to do after the main segment before we end this podcast? Mm-hmm. That's the Sticky You Leaves segment. This is the part of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a possibly meaningless world. So, Austin, given the scrambling of your transcendental coordinates, um, mm. what is it that you're uh, – what's already been made a decision for you for which you will take responsibility for liking or something like that? <laughs> uh, I guess I was forced into cleaning the backyard because I had already committed myself to it a few months ago. Does that – count is that for i don't know yeah you, um, you found yourself having to clean the backyard yeah i woke i awoke in the backyard with tools in my hands and i was <laughs> commanded by the spirit to go forth um no i i so i live in a in a house that is uh this really cool old like terraced style turn of the century turn of you know 19th and 20th century style home and um so it's it's really got a cool layout to it. Like my room is all like brick and everything, like exposed brick. So it's super kind of shabby chic and shit. But um, uh, the backyard is um, kind of like this small patioed area, but it had gotten just overgrown with weeds. I'm talking bad, like to the point where it was like you almost couldn't go back there, you know, um, which is just shitty because that's where we dry our clothes and shit like that. But it was fucking awful. And then in the springtime here, all the weeds like bloom and shit, which those like, what are the white ones called? Are those dandelions? Uh, I think like so, the, yeah. That like blow everywhere and shit in the wind. Kind of like that, but they weren't like dandelions because dandelions have like the individual needles, needles, I think. These weren't that. Whatever it was. So the backyard was just over friggin' grown. So um, I went into the backyard and I cleaned it all up. And um, a few, let's say about a month and a half ago, I also did a little bit of woodworking where I made a pallet bed for myself. And that was actually what inspired. What's up? What is that? You know, like pallets, like wooden pallets that you. Oh, pallets. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm using that as like the base for my bed. So I like, I like made that and I stained them and I colored them and stuff like that. And so they look kind of cool. They got this rustic, like gray stain color and i made my own stain like a diy stain with coffee white vinegar and steel wool pads and you kind of let it sit in a jar for a day and it creates this really funky grayish brownish stain so for people looking for a diy wood stain there you go um (laughs) but the idea was is that when i was doing that in the backyard i decided like that was when i offered to clean up the backyard because i just well first of all it needed to be done but there was also just something that I really enjoyed about working with my hands and doing a project that is physical that I love so much. And for people listening that don't know this, like I used to work in construction. My father has been in construction for 40, over 40 years, so about 40 years now, maybe a little over 40 years. Um, and so I kind of grew up doing projects around the home and I had like a little construction business with a buddy of mine when I was – 20 years old as well um and then like i said i worked construction mostly wood repair external wood repair but also like building fences and kitchen repairs my mom's a designer and so she's like designed bathrooms and shit so i used to like help sometimes with uh the the designs that we would have done on our home like the remodels that we'd have done on our home because we would have like my stepdad working and i'd help him like tiling and shit like that so i've always enjoyed craftsmanship to some degree and that's really what my sticky leaves is is that i just Without trying to over-essentialize, I just think that human beings are meant to work with their fucking hands, you know? Like, I do intellectual work all day. 
where I'm sitting down and I'm reading and I'm writing and I'm taking notes and then emailing and debating and engaging with people and responding with people and talking with people. I talk all the time and and I love it. It is great. I love being social. Um, and then for me, the reason that I work out so consistently is because like when I'm in a swimming pool and I'm swimming, I'm not, I'm not typing and I'm not sitting at my desk hunched over and I'm not sitting in my chair and I'm, I'm not like forcing my, I'm not feeling like I have to get up and walk around to stretch my legs. It's just like I'm doing it because my body's supposed to motherfucking move, you know? And I think that's one of the things I love about working with my hands as well as that there's this like artistic expression as well that feeling like I am imbuing myself into this creation that came from my mind from conception to completion, you know, the formal cause through the efficient cause to the final cause kind of thing. It's fantastic. You know, I love it. Um, and, and there is just, and I think also it's been really nice cause I, you know, I was, we were talking about that, that Eugene McCara, her text that we read a couple weeks ago, we've never been mod or never been disenchanted. And then I'm, I'm reading his book and he's talking a lot about like the arts and crafts kind of, um, guys that were influenced by like William Morris and um, the arts and crafts movement. And for people who don't know also, I've got a tattoo on my body inspired by an arts and crafts uh, furniture designer named Stickley who stamped all of his furniture with Alls Ick Khan and it was kind of a family motto. So again, I was always kind of around like the arts and crafts mindset and mentality that like a craftsman is engaged in this artistic poetic project and and I just love working with my hands and I swear dude I know we talk about my cabin and my fantasy a lot but it will have to have like some kind of wood shop where I will do crafts and I will paint things and I'll build bookshelves which I've done in old houses that I've lived in I've built bookshelves and if I lived in a more permanent place I would do more woodwork and painting like I love painting my room and painting furniture and restaining furniture and I'm not I don't really give a shit about repairing though so I'm not like a repair guy, like if the vacuum breaks. I, I don't find any joy in fixing that. I don't find any joy in fixing appliances. But what I find joy in is like building bookshelves, building chairs, building tables. And even in cleaning up the backyard, I felt like I was building a space for us to hang out in a way. So I felt like super accomplished and it gave me a, a type of like vigor afterwards. And I don't know. I just think that that's... Yeah. I, again, I don't want to essentialize, but for me, it definitely is. But I feel like, like I'm just meant for that. I'm meant to do something constructive with my hands. I can't decide if this is like that Wittgensteinian, just like tell your students philosophy is stupid and to go get a job working with their hands. <laughs> or if this is you like basically reincarnating Jesus and you spend <laughs> half your time talking to the rabbis, the synagogue, the other half, like making tables and shit. I mean, like, my, luckily you're past 33, so you're not going to get crucified. At least that not is at true. The same age. That is true. Of course, I've always felt like I was a couple years behind. So you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's more of the Jesus thing. Not, not to pat myself on the back, but it's not like stop doing and or stop thinking and just go like take up a construction job and you'll be happy because it's not that. It's definitely not that. You know, because um, even as I'm in the backyard, like there's like a meditative time, repetitive activity. But no, you know what? I'm not thinking about philosophy, though. Not at all. But you're meditating unconsciously, though, right? It's like, yeah, it's yeah, totally under the surface. 
Yeah, yeah. But it's more affective than conceptual. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it has to be like literally making a thing with your hands, but doing some sort of at least somewhat physically engaging creative work is super important. I guess, well, but, but like satisfactory life. cooking food, like you like to cook, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's, to me, that is kind of similar. That's like, that's craftsmanship. You know, some people like to knit. Some people like to um, re- like patch their clothing or um, make DIY backpacks in bags or whatever. I just, I don't know, man. I think that that stuff has like a real, it's like it almost feels cheap to say that it's like got a real psychological benefit. It's almost more than that. Like it's, God, I'm, you're going to fucking hate this, but it's like, like a primordial, it's like a primordial truth. <laughs> well, it's like a, to bring up Aristotle again, he's got this conception of this distinction between like constitutive goods and I think it's like productive goods or something, right? Like making things doesn't produce pleasure and then therefore it's good as a, like an instrumental good. Yeah. It's constitutive of of the of the good, right? It actually mm. is the good itself. Um, it, it's not like it brings you pleasure to do these things. No, it is the good thing itself, right? Um, mm. So yeah, it's it's the enjoyment of the process, not of the result. Um, that mm. matters, and so yeah, I mean, we the the, the stupid explanation is like the um, evolutionary psychological explanation, right? Which is that we yeah we had to sort of evolve such that we would find immense pleasure in doing these things, and so even though now we don't need to anymore, we still do it on the side. But that's I think totally uh, wrong <laughs> for various <laughs> reasons. Um, yeah, and that we can acknowledge that creation is important to us, right? Mm. Um, because we are beings who do things like for reasons and we want to, uh, engage in projects that are more important than just finding the next meal or finding the next pleasure. Right. And that's going to involve a creation of some sort. And because we have bodies and minds, um, and are physical, not all of the creation can be ideas, <laughs> right? Yes. Sometimes the creation has to be in the world. Um, and so, uh, and be physical and be acting tangible like that. And so, yeah, we gotta gotta find room for that shit, right? It's constitutive totally. of having a good life. Totally, yeah. So I would just encourage y'all to build something. Try to build a fucking chair. No, don't build a chair because if you <laughs> you know fuck up and break your hip. Yeah, don't don't build a chair. Build a birdhouse. <laughs> you gonna fuck up the birds instead? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, build a rat cage. I don't know what's acceptable anymore. <laughs> build an ant hill. <laughs> yeah, just go build the sandcastle first. Build the sandcastle. That's homeless. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I will post the link to Ruda's essay in the show notes, or you just give it a Google, Ruda, R-U-D-A, Courage, if you want to read that. Obviously, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Insta, owls underscore at underscore dawn, if you want to chat with us. Uh, if you leave us a five-star review, and I'm sorry, right, five-star rating and a review with a question in it, we will go ahead and address that on a future episode. What else am I missing, T-Roy? I think that's pretty much it, dude. Sweet. Well, I guess we got nothing else to say unless there's anything you want to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidania, Mary Konsky. Yeah.